Well, we started a series several weeks ago in the Gospel of Mark. I'm having a lot of fun, I have to admit, preparing for each Sunday as we go through uh, this Gospel, and we've been working our way through it. And today we're going to be continuing our look at chapter 2 in Mark's Gospel. We're going to pick up at verse 18, and we're going to be asking the question, should I be feasting or fasting? So be thinking about that as we prepare to read this together. But we're in Mark chapter 2 starting with verse 18, and I'm just going to read down to verse 22. So it's not a very long portion of Scripture that has no indication of how long the message will be, but the Scripture itself is slightly shorter. But this is what it says in Mark chapter 2, starting with verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to look at this portion of Scripture together today. We're just so grateful for who you are and for how you reveal yourself to us in your word. Lord, we pray that as we look at this portion of the Gospel of Mark, that you'd help us to understand more about the nature of your son's earthly ministry. We pray also, Lord, that you'd help us to understand more about the mindset and the attitude that you desire that we possess as we go about our life on this earth, representing you as your ambassadors, as men and women who have been changed and transformed through a relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Father, we commit this time to you now. We pray that your Spirit would speak to us and reveal to us things from your Word that could only be spiritually discerned. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, there are many things that I enjoy about living in Langhorne, Pennsylvania. And it dawned on me um, maybe about a year ago that I have now spent the majority of my life in Langhorne, living in Langhorne. I've lived there, I've lived here (laughs) more than any other locale in uh, in my life. And I moved around a lot growing up, so I guess that wasn't too terribly difficult. But when you add up my college years, and then you add these these past 15 years that our family has has lived here, the, you know, more than 50% of my life has been spent here in this community, and I very much enjoy it. Overall, I think the weather's also pretty good. For Pennsylvania, I've lived in two other major sections of Pennsylvania, and we get better weather here than the other places that I lived. Winter is shorter here, fall lasts longer, spring comes quicker. I'm good with that. Summer, a little muggy, but I'm not going to complain about it because I like overall our weather. I also like the fact that our area has a lot of good historical buildings. There's a lot of history in this area, a lot of locations of historical significance. I think that's pretty neat. I also like that it's not very difficult to find a place to park your car. And we especially appreciated that yesterday, right, when we were parking cars in the neighborhood. Um, But where I grew up, that was all developed before people owned automobiles. 
And so you have to like rethink things. You either tear buildings down or, or turn roads into one-way streets and make it so that you use on-street parking as best you can, but not many, I mean, in my neighborhood, nobody had a driveway. Everything was all street parking. And if you didn't get a street parking spot right by your house, you had to go up a block and hope that there was something available up there, but you also knew that you might be taking somebody's favorite spot up there and you might have some conflict. And so I do like, about, I do like the fact that it's not that terribly difficult to find parking spots here because much of the major development in this area happened after the automobile. I also like the fact, that's, by the way, this is what today's message is just going to be about, everything I like about Langhorne. Um, but I also like the fact that most restaurants are within five or ten minutes from our house. Same with stores. Restaurants and stores, five, ten minutes away. Having lived in other areas, the area we lived in right before we moved here, it was 30 to 40 minutes uh, when we were driving to restaurants or stores. 30 to 40 minutes one way, right? And now it's like if I want to go to Dunkin', it's three minutes down the road. I can just walk there. You know, if I want to go to Home Depot, I could go five minutes this way or seven minutes this way, right? There's two of them, you know, if you want to go to the mall, movie theater, whatever. We've got all sorts of options, restaurants, stores, everything. But there's also a big downside to living in Langhorne. Do you know what it is? It's a big downside, and it's the same as the upside. It's the same thing with so many good restaurant options within five minutes of my house. I have struggled to practice moderation in my eating habits. And um, I look at it and I think, you know, there's options that exist essentially like right outside my front door. And as someone who doesn't use drugs or alcohol to medicate my emotional pain, I do tend to sometimes turn to a different vice, and that different vice is food, right? And particularly when I'm in stress or in pain, like that's, that's medicine sometimes for me. That's not healthy, but sometimes I do do that, I confess. And when we moved to this area, and likewise, we're in the early phases of our ministry here with the church, I was very highly excited uh, about just living here and about the process of, of serving here. I remember in those early days, you know, many of the Sundays we had less than we had less than 10 people many of those early Sundays, and so it's very exciting to see different things. Uh, Karen and I were talking before the worship service began. Uh, the very first outreach event we did was at this same time uh, 15 years ago, and zero people showed up. So, um, you know, as I look at yesterday, and you have seven, 800 people show up, the first one we did, zero people showed up. And I remember during that particular time, I felt a bit stressed, and because I was a bit stressed trying to you know, do different things in my ministry role, I, I, and living five minutes from all my favorite restaurants, I was like, maybe food will help me de-stress. And so I kept utilizing that until I had to buy bigger pants, and I was like, hey, you know how this keeps going, right? Eventually you have to stop. So my wife and I, we, got a we made a decision. We had actually seen something about juice fasting. We're like, all right, let's do this. We got a juicer, and we started juice fasting. And so we would take vegetables and fruit and all that, and get all the juices out of it. And for a while there, we're like, let's just see how long we can go. Not eating normal foods, but let's just drink juice. Like, drink vegetables. What are you, why are you laughing? Why are you la Does this not seem sustainable to you in some capacity? I don't understand. No one, we didn't tell everybody we were doing this, but we did that. And as a short-term option, it was wonderful, right? But as a long-term option, it's like, oh, this is not working. Like, I have to drink another green bean. You know, I'm just like... <laughs> I'm going to go out of my mind. But have you, have you, obviously we did not stay with that, okay? The, uh, but have you ever attempted to fast from something that you considered unhealthy? 
You ever try and do that? Just anything, any category. It could be food, it could be anything else. What approach did you take? If you tried that, if you tried fasting from something, what approach did you take? I've heard, by the way, I've heard of people taking, obviously, the, the most obvious fast that most people seem to talk about is a fast from food. So I've heard a lot of people talk about different seasons that they've attempted to fast from food. Um, I've also heard in recent days people talk about taking fasts from video games. There's a lot of studies about the addictive nature of video games, and so I've heard different people say, yeah, I had to actually fast from that for a period of time. I've also heard of people, plenty of people say, you know, for a season I'm taking a fast from social media. Do you ever do that? That's becoming something that I think a lot of people are considering um, helpful, right, in their, own, in their own walk with the Lord, in fact. You know, taking a break from social media. I've heard of people taking breaks from, like, a fast from televised sports, et cetera, et cetera. And I understand the reasons behind all of these decisions, and I certainly consider fasting to be a helpful activity when it's done at the right time, uh, for the right duration, with the right motives. It could be a very healthy spiritual practice. In fact, uh, the Bible actually gives us an example of Jesus fasting during a set period of time. When you look at Luke chapter 4, there's a very specific purpose for this as well, but in Luke 4 verses 1 and 2, it says, in Jesus... Fill, or full of the Holy Spirit, so in Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Now, certainly, understandably, right? After 40 days, you bet he was hungry. But what do you think about fasting as a spiritual discipline? When you just think about it, just as a spiritual discipline, something that from time to time we choose to incorporate into our spiritual routines or our relationship with the Lord, uh, I don't hear people speak of it super often in that respect, but there's definitely times when I believe that it's appropriate to fast for a period of time, particularly if, um, if you're thinking, all right, you know, I'm going to take this prescribed time and I'm going to fast from something that's become too, it's taking too much of my attention, and I'm going to take a break from it, whether it be food or something else, and I'm going to dedicate that time for prayer. Time that I, that I was a little too enamored with this thing or that thing, I'm going to just pause from it, and I'm going to dedicate that time for prayer. I think that that's a wonderful thing. I think that that can be a very healthy thing. By the way, there are all sorts of fasts that, you know, we see people doing. I just mentioned a few of them. There's even a kind of an interesting one that, that's referenced in Scripture in addition to food. On uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you have the Apostle Paul actually saying that under certain circumstances, there are some couples that have choose, chosen to take a, a temporary break from intimate relations for a set period of time so that they can uh, dedicate the time to prayer. This is what he says related to that. He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time. So you see like the concept he sets up here for this, except by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so, you know, Paul here is saying, he's saying, look, it's appropriate if you both agree to this for a period of time to take a fast from that kind of relationship or that kind of uh, way of relating and then dedicate the time to prayer and then come back together again so that you're not tempted because of a lack of self-control. And so fasting can be a useful spiritual discipline in a variety of areas. But not everyone who has historically engaged in fasting 
was doing so for spiritually pure motives. That's not the motive that everybody has employed when they were actually utilizing a fast. And in the Gospel of Mark, we're actually shown some examples here of some people who seem to practice fasting mainly because it gave off the appearance of spirituality, not because it actually deepened their walk with God. When you look at Mark chapter 2, verse 18, the Scripture says this, Now John's disciples, so it's referencing John the Baptist, it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, so the hymn is Jesus, so people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, please know, and I know you already know this, but please know that if you ever attempt to do something that goes against the status quo, people are going to have plenty to say about that. Have you ever noticed that? If you ever do something in your life that doesn't just go along with whatever the cultural expectation or, you know, the cultural thought or everybody else's preference, if you dare do something different, um, you know, people look at that and they, they say, we don't know what box to put you in now, and it makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. I remember some years ago, I decided I don't ever want to have another car payment again, and I shared that online. That's a mistake, right? Share, share your opinions online. That always goes well. I was like, yeah, this is it. No more car payments. I'm just going just gonna to do this a little differently. And you know what everybody said? Just about everybody. Not everybody, thankfully, but just about everybody. They're like, yeah, impossible. Impossible. That's impossible. Well, I can tell you 13 years later since I posted that, not impossible. And I remember at the time thinking, why does this like bother? Why would somebody like be so bothered to like kind of slam me down for that thought? And you realize, oh, because it's different. You're trying to do something different. And anytime you try and do something different, anything that goes against the status quo, even something inconsequential in the scheme of life as something you want to do related to your car, if it's different, don't be surprised if somebody has an opinion about it. And that's particularly true when your life is being lived in the public eye like Jesus' life was being lived. He's living in the public eye. He's doing things differently. He's saying things differently. People have all sorts of opinions about it. Every move he made, every word he spoke, it was all being scrutinized. Some people were observing what he was doing, and they looked at him and they wonder, why are you not operating like some of the other people of religious influence in our culture? You're a person of religious influence. Why, why would you not operate like this person or this person or this group and this group? Why are your disciples behaving differently than the disciples who follow John the Baptist or the disciples who follow the Pharisees? These are people operating in our community who have a reputation for being spiritual people, and you're communicating spiritual things. Why don't you and your team do things exactly like these other teams that we're already familiar with. And in particular, you look at the Scripture, and the Scripture says that the people were questioning Jesus about the fasting practices that he and his disciples either did or did not happen to follow. People wanted to know specifically why Jesus and his disciples did not appear to be fasting like John the Baptist's disciples or the disciples of the Pharisees were known to do. Now, when you think of John the Baptist, and when you think about the ministry that John the Baptist had, John the Baptist had a ministry of repentance. He was encouraging the people to repent in preparation for the fact that the Messiah was going to be right there in their midst, that the Messiah was going to be doing ministry in that generation. And he's saying, prepare your hearts, reconcile with your family, prepare your hearts, get ready, turn from your sin, prepare for the Messiah and the work that he's doing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And so the disciples of John the Baptist were, were people who were focused on that message. They were focused on a message of repentance and preparation for the full unveiling of the Messiah's ministry. So it would seem likely to me that their motive for fasting was in line with that message or that motivation, right? They, they were thinking about repentance. So, you know, I don't think anything negative about John the Baptist's disciples and their motives for, for fasting. It was known that they were doing this, but I don't automatically think anything negative about that. But then the other people that are mentioned here are the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, maybe in their time, had a reasonably decent reputation as being rather disciplined spiritual people. But in retrospect, the Gospels exposed their motives and show us what was going on in the minds and hearts of many of, of the people of influence among that group. And the Pharisees, who are a strict religious sect of Judaism at the time, they wanted to not only fast, but they wanted to make sure everybody knew they were fasting. And that's a very different motivation, right? If you ever practice fasting, it's nobody's business but you and God. You don't have to tell anyone. You know, maybe you could tell your, your spouse so they don't think that you stopped liking their cooking or something like that, right? Um, or that, you know, they're like, do we not have enough money for food because I, not, I don't see that you're eating food, right? So you can tell your spouse, right? But other than that, it's kind of like, it's one of those things where it's just between you and God. It's not supposed to be for public display. Don't put it on your social media. Oh, so hungry, so hungry. But, you know, this is what I got to do, right? If I want to be spiritual, I got to fast. Oh, day two, day two. <laughs> Did not expire since yesterday, but man, there's a, Rumbly and matumbly, right? <laughs> and the Pharisees, what were they doing? They wanted to make sure everybody knew. So as they're doing this, they want to make sure everybody knew. In fact, I've read that they made it a pattern to fast twice a week. From what I read, they fasted on Mondays and on Thursdays. And when you look in, in Luke chapter 18, it doesn't reference the specific days of the week, but in the parable that's told in Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee is quoted as saying, I fast twice a week. God must love me, essentially, right? I'm so much better than other people, is what he's saying. I, I'm so much better than other people. I fast twice a week. Wanted everybody to know that they fasted. And if you didn't know that they did this, they found a way to make sure that you knew because they wanted you to think that they were uncommonly spiritual men. That's what they wanted you to think. But Jesus taught something very, very differently, it's very different about the discipline of fasting. He actually mentions it in, in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. He says, and when you fast, so if you ever choose to fast, for whatever reason, he says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. So picture it, every Monday and every Thursday in that cultural context, like, oh, great, the Pharisees are going to let us know how spiritual they are because of their fasting today. They disfigure their faces, they just look sad, they look hungry, they look haggard, right? That their fasting may be seen by others. And then Jesus said, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. What did he mean by that? Their reward was praise of other people. He's like, all right, you, you want the praise of other people? That'll get you praise from other people. They'll look at you and they'll think you're so spiritually disciplined and wonderful. He's like, great, that's your reward. If you think that you're going to have some sort of eternal reward connected to this, he's saying, you're kidding yourself. So he says, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward, but when you fast, anoint your head. So it's like, you know, comb your hair, right? Wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
So he's saying, don't draw unhealthy attention to yourself. The goal of our life is to, to bring glory to God. It's not to bring glory to ourselves. The goal of our lives is not to try and gain attention or praise for ourselves. At the end of the day, the goal of, you know, it's not a good day if you receive praise and a bad day if you didn't receive praise. The goal of your life and my life as followers of Christ is to make sure that the Lord receives the glory, to glorify him. And so when Jesus answered the question that he received about fasting here in Mark chapter 2, he wanted those who heard his answer to understand that there is a time for fasting, but there's also a time for feasting. And what he says here is this, you know, there's a, there, there's, he's indicating that there's a time for fasting in private without drawing attention to yourself or seeking the praise of others. But then there's also a time when fasting is not the most appropriate response to what the Lord's trying to show you. And in fact, the people who are asking Jesus this question were living in a time when it did not make as much sense to fast as it most often does. Uh, the way Jesus says it here, when you look at verses 19 and 20, of Mark chapter 2, it says, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So when you think about what's going on here, you have Jesus. He's the long-awaited Messiah. He's right there now in their presence. He's in their midst. He's in their presence. You have the bridegroom of the church speaking with them and ministering among them. They could hear him with their ears. They could see him with their eyes. The one that the prophets, so think about it from this perspective. He's the one that the prophets for thousands of years have been pointing toward and speaking about and talking about the years when, he, when the Messiah was going to be in the midst of the people. And Jesus said, all right, there's going to be a day when a day of fasting will come. But the day that he was speaking these words, he's saying, it's not today. Today's not that day. Is he speaking those words in that day? He was like, today's not the day. That's why, that's why we're not fasting. It's not the day. The day's going to come, but it's not yet, because this was a day of celebration. This was a day of rejoicing, because the prophecies that spoke of his arrival and the prophecies that spoke of his ministry were being fulfilled right there in front of their face. That's not a day for mourning. That's a day for celebration. It's not a day for fasting. That's a day for feasting. And in the same breath, Jesus, Jesus also reminded them that there would be a day when fasting would be highly appropriate for his disciples. And Jesus said the day would come when he would be taken away from them. He was speaking of his arrest. He was speaking of his crucifixion. He was speaking of his death. Now, praise God, he rose from death on the third day and defeated death. He's saying, you know, there's going to come a day. There's going to be a day when I'm taken away. And when I'm taken away from the people, that's the time for fasting. But in the meantime, those who were present with them, this was a season of celebration. This was a season of delight. And it's interesting because the people who are interrogating Jesus about his fasting practices in this conversation, you know how they strike me? Like they're looking at Jesus, right? This should be a time of celebrating. This should be a time of feasting. This should be a time where everybody's all excited. They actually strike me as, and maybe you've had this experience, do you ever have um, like your work Christmas party right? So that's going to be coming up in just a few short months. You ever go to your work Christmas party and interact with someone that you work with and then discover all they want to talk about at the Christmas party is work? And you're like, you know you're at the Christmas party right now, right? Like, why are we talking about work? Who cares about work right now? We're at the Christmas party. The goal of the party is 
that we stop thinking about work for five minutes and enjoy some celebration in, in each other's context. They strike me as that, or sometimes, I, I, all right, my apologies to any pastors who are present with us here. Um, pastors, you know I love you. Um, anyone that's listening to this recording, take this as I mean it, not as you think I mean it. Um, but you know what? Like, I enjoy a good ministry conference or a good pastoral conference, but you know what drives me nuts? When I get caught in a conversation at a pastor's conference where guys start talking about things like this, and this is, these are literal things that have happened to me. I'm thinking of very specific examples. Hey, uh, so do you guys use, like, the plastic communion cups or the glass ones? Like, which, which ones do you guys prefer? Do you use, like, the plastic ones or the glass ones? I was like, are we really going to be talking about plastic or glass right now? It's like, okay, and then this will be another conversation. Hey, uh, you know, when you do your announcements, like, do you do them at the start of the service or do you do them at the end? It's like, can't this be an email? Can this be like an email and not like during the conference we're going to spend a half hour talking about when during the service you do announcements or if we use plastic communion cups or glass ones? That's an email. Like, right now we're at a conference here. Like, let's learn stuff. Let's, let's add, uh, whatever. Anyway. You don't go to that and then just be like the, the downer talking about like the most dull, boring topic. And I, that's how I look at this as these people are coming up to Jesus. There he is, the fulfillment of prophecy, right in their midst. And they're like, why don't you fast like John the Baptist's disciples or like the Pharisees? And so you have Jesus talking to this group of people, and he's trying to teach large groups of people and small groups of people. All of this is going on as he's traveling around. He's trying to open their eyes to understand things that obviously at this point they don't understand. These are things that have been foreign to them. And they were basically stuck in this old mindset that they were having a hard time stepping out of. And in many respects, when you look at some of the things that characterize that old mindset, Many of them were stuck in a belief that in order to please God, we need to keep a list of spiritual activities that somehow earn us God's favor. That was a way people were thinking in this context. But here's the thing. God's favor is not something that can be earned or obtained through our work. Scripture is very clear to teach that. The favor of God you desire the favor of God upon your life, which I certainly desire upon my life, I would encourage you to desire that upon your life as well. Every Christian should desire the favor of God. But when you think about the favor of God, you're talking about an undeserved gift. You're talking about the grace of God. It's not something that we earn. This is something the Lord gives us because we could never earn it. We could never do enough to get it or be good enough to receive it. And the work He wants us to do or the response he desires that we have toward that gift is to believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ. So he grants us grace, and he asks us to believe. That's how that works. He grants us grace. He gives us the grace to believe, and he wants us to believe in response to the grace that he gives to us. In fact, Jesus said this in John chapter 6, verse 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Everybody thinks, like, what do I need to do to please God? Well, here's the thing. It starts with this. This is what it is. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one the Father has sent into this world to rescue lost humanity. Believe in him. Now, here's the thing. Some people say, well, is there no room for good works in your life? I'll tell you what happens. If you genuinely believe in Jesus, you know what you'll, you'll start to see in your life? 
You'll want to listen to his instruction. You'll want to listen to his counsel. Your heart will become sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. When you read things in Scripture, you will look at them and say, I should apply that to my life. But sometimes people look at that and they say, I've got to do all these things to earn the favor of God. And then you look at Scripture and Scripture says, no, the favor of God is not earned. It is given as a gift because God is compassionate and loving. And the work of God is to believe in the one he has sent, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then as we trust in him, he gives us a new mind. He gives us new eyes, makes us a new creation, and he changes our desires and he makes our desires line up with his. But that was going to require a radical change of thought in the generation in which Jesus was exp ex just expressing this and explaining this to the people that were in that context. For people who had grown up thinking that the favor of God was something that could be earned through human effort, this was a drastically different way to think. So Jesus gave them a couple analogies. He's like, all right, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to explain it to you with analogies, just like Jesus would often do, analogies, parables, things like that. Gives them a couple analogies to drive the point home, to make the point a little bit clearer. Look at what he tells them. In Mark chapter 2, starting with verse 21, he says, all right, it's like this. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. So that's the first analogy that he gives them. We'll talk about it in just a second. And then he says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, maybe you've heard those quotes before. I don't know if they were ever clarified for you, if you just felt like the second you heard them, they made complete sense to you. But I'm just going to explain what he was talking about as he used these analogies. New, unshrunk cloth won't work on an old garment because what's going to happen? It's going to tear away as it shrinks. This is what Jesus is talking about, using an analogy that some in his hearing would understand. New wine that's in the process of fermenting, it can't be put in an old, brittle wineskin because it's going to cause... Those things were made out of goat skin, so they used like these goat skin bags. And it's going to cause that old, brittle wineskin made out of goat skins... It's going to cause it to burst because it's old and it's brittle, uh, because as the gases of fermentation are doing their thing, it's just going to cause that thing to pop. And what he's saying when he uses these two analogies here, he's basically saying in the same way, the rigid and un or just inflexible understanding that the people had at that time, the rigid, inflexible understanding of the religious systems of their day did not accommodate the eternal truth of the gospel. He's saying, your mind is all wrapped up in what you do, and what's Jesus' message? He's like, it's not about what you do, it's what I'm here to do for you, because you can't do it. You're all wrapped up in what you do, and I'm here to do it for you, because you actually can't do what you're trying to do. And he's saying, this inflexible, rigid thought that you've placed over genuine faith, it's causing you to miss the point. It's like sewing a new piece of cloth to an old garment. It's like putting new wine in an old wineskin. It doesn't work that way. And when I read examples like this in Scripture, I can't help but think, not just about the people living during that generation, but I can't help but think about the ways in which we repeat this same mistake in our own day. It's not just people that lived generations ago. It's us, too. I think humanity is really, really good at attempting to impose 
man-made ideas and man-made systems on God. We do it right up to this day, right? We try to box them in either according to our expectations or our preferences, and we leave very little room for what he's actually attempting to do or just a countercultural way of thinking, right? We, we, just, we just impose upon God a manner of thinking that fits more with our culture and cultural expectations than what Scripture actually teaches us about him. And you have Jesus in this context just taking a very countercultural approach. He's trying to help this group of people, but also those who would read his words in generations in the future, to understand that genuine faith and sincere belief, that's what matters. It's not all about the external visible activities that everybody sees you doing. It's not what earns the favor of God. The favor of God cannot be earned. It's received as a gift as we trust in Jesus Christ. But again, most people don't understand that. And I think many people that, that you and I have come across during the course of our lives are actually stuck in a mindset that produces two things, shame and anxiety. Think about that for a second. If it all comes down to what you do or don't do, has anyone here found a way to live perfectly yet? I haven't figured that one out. I don't think I'm going to figure that one out this side of heaven either. And when you disappoint yourself and you can't live perfectly after you've been trying to live perfectly, then what do you have? Shame and anxiety. Shame because you didn't live up to your own artificial standard. Anxiety because you're trying to hold things together in your own strength that can only be held together with the hand of God. And so this mindset that's focused so much on what we do or don't do really is something that produces shame and anxiety. And so you have the group of people hearing Jesus say these things that were very much locked in a system that came down to the efforts of their hands, not the works that Jesus had already accomplished on their behalf and was about to, to fully accomplish on their behalf. And we don't want to make that same mistake. Life is not about what you and I do, uh, what you and I do or don't do. Our faith ultimately comes down to what Christ has done on our behalf, and then we have the privilege to live in response to that as an expression of genuine faith, not an attempt to earn the favor of God. Now, throughout the course of our lives, and you probably found yourself in the same kind of uh, spot, my wife and I have actually made the effort to tell many people about what it means to know Jesus, what it means to follow Him. I'm always impressed with just the different ways I see my wife doing that. I really appreciate that about her. There are different ways she's seen me do that, attempting to tell people about Jesus, about who he is, what he does in our life. And we've also coupled many of those conversations. We actually had the privilege yesterday uh, to have several conversations like that, which was really exciting. But we've coupled many of those conversations with an invitation to worship Jesus with our church family at some point. Maybe you've done that too, where you're talking to somebody who doesn't know the Lord, or maybe you know they're curious about that, and you've invited them to come and worship together with us as a church family. I'm grateful for those that do that. My wife and I have certainly done that many times. We continue to do that. Some people respond to those invitations, which is always wonderful. Uh, we're very grateful for that. But then there are others who reject that invitation, and I've noticed a common pattern or a common narrative that many of those who reject the invitation seem to repeat in their mind or just speak, to their, speak with their mouths, and it usually goes something like this. And tell me if you've ever heard somebody say something like this. Sometimes we'll extend an invitation to somebody to join us to, you know, for a time of worship so they could actually see what it's like in the midst of Christian community and what we teach as far as following Jesus. And I've heard this or some version of this many times. Oh, you don't know the stuff I've done. 
You don't know the stuff I've done. I am pretty sure that God would strike your church with lightning if I ever walked into that place. To which I say, how original, right? How original. Like, how many times have you heard that said? And if you've ever said that yourself, you have to find a new thing to say. Because I've just heard it too many times, right? God doesn't go around striking buildings with lightning just because someone that's an unbeliever who he came to this earth to rescue and save actually happened to walk into a worship service. Do you really think that's how a compassionate God is going to operate? It's not how it works, right? Oh, he's going to strike it with lightning. I walk in there. Things I've done, please. You should look at the biographies of some of the people who authored the scriptures, right? Kind of interesting. Or how about this? This is a conversation I recently had with somebody that doesn't live too far from me. He said, yeah, I've tried all that stuff, and it doesn't interest me. No matter how hard I try, it could never be good enough. I've tried all that. It just doesn't interest me. No matter how hard I try, I could never be good enough. Exactly. You're a good candidate. Come join us. It's a group of people who realize I could never be good enough, but Jesus is good enough, and he'll give me the gift of his righteousness, and he'll give you the gift of his righteousness as well. As you trust in him, you'll receive that gift. And here's the thing. I'm guessing that this was the same kind of mindset that was entrapping people living during that era in which Jesus was doing ministry. They were thinking the same sorts of things. People are people. It doesn't matter what generation you look at. We're all the same. We all do the same stuff. We all think the same things. People were stuck in the thought that salvation is, is earned through effort and that a relationship with God was ultimately impossible for them because they weren't good enough to get it. That's what they were thinking about, right? And then you have Jesus arrive and he says, listen, this new wine that I'm serving up here doesn't fit in that old wineskin. It doesn't fit with that old way of thinking. You got to think differently. I'm giving you something better than what you've understood before. This, this new piece of cloth I'm giving you, don't try and sew it to an old garment. He's trying to encourage them, think differently. He arrives, he makes it clear that eternal life, that forgiveness of sin, that a relationship with our Creator, it's not anchored to our best efforts. All of those things can be obtained when we stop trusting in our hands and start trusting in Jesus, who is the unshrunk cloth, who is the new wineskin. And here's the thing, and let me say this as we finish up. Christ offers anyone who will leave their old mindset of disbelief aside and trust in Him. He offers anyone who will believe in Him the opportunity to feast at His table forever. That's his offer to us. He brings us from fasting to feasting. That's his offer to each one of us. And when you look at a portion of Scripture like this, I think we're being forced to answer the question, are you willing to trade your old mindset for this new belief? That's what Christ is offering to us. New belief in him from fasting to feasting in his presence for all time. It's correct if you've thought, you know what, I could never be good enough to get it. That's the whole point. That's why he came. He's like, you can't be good enough to get it. So he came to live the perfect life on our behalf. He already did it for us. The work's done. And he invites us to trust in him. He brings us from fasting to feasting. And it's a feast that doesn't end. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege that you've given us to be able to look at your word together and to think about who you are and how you operate in our day-to-day -day lives and what you were trying to communicate to a generation of people 
that was stuck in an old mindset, and then here we are a couple thousand years later, and we have each found ourselves buying into that same old mindset. The thought that it comes down to the efforts of our hands, or the thought that we have to make ourselves somehow look good before you'll accept us. And then we find out in your word that that ambition is impossible to fulfill. We can't do it. And so, Father, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life for us, to die death, where he took our sin upon himself, our condemnation upon himself, so that we could be forgiven of it. It's already been paid for. And then your son rose from death, defeating sin, shame, death, all of these things, defeating the power of Satan that once dominated our minds and our living. Jesus defeated it. And so, Lord, we pray that you'd help each of us to experience the victory that your son has secured on our behalf. We pray that if our faith has been in, the, in our efforts or our ability to look good or the work of our hands, however we want to phrase it, we pray that we would move from that old belief into the new belief of understanding that your son is sufficient, that we could experience new life through your son. And what you ask of us is that we simply believe. And Lord, we know that we can't believe in our own strength, our own, our own merit, our own uh, understanding. It's a miracle anytime somebody believes. It's indication that you've opened up their eyes that were blind to spiritual truths and you've allowed them to see. And so, Lord, we pray for every one of us gathered here that you'd open up our eyes to see the spiritual truth that you communicated through your Son in Mark chapter 2. We pray for our family and our friends that right now are living in the midst of spiritual blindness, that you'd open up their eyes as well, that they would see the truth, the truth of your gospel as it's been proclaimed and lived out through your Son, Jesus Christ, that anyone in our lives that right now walks in that blindness we pray that you'd help them to see and experience the new life that you've blessed us with. We pray that they would share it as well. Thank you, Father, for all that you've done on our behalf. Thank you for being patient with us and being gracious toward us. We just commit ourselves to you now, Lord. We thank you for your love, and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.